podcast by the vet gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark as usual, episode 191. Getting close to that 200 Friday, the 28th of May 2021, Mark. And we need to jump in and mention our giveaway again. We've had we've had a flurry, Mark, of email requests for entry into the giveaway. Well, at least one. Uh, and so you've got a good chance of winning it because um, the numbers will be, um, well, they certainly won't be in the thousands and they won't be in the hundreds. So, um, And I it's big, it. Brendan, it's big. The, the, the swag is massive massive it is massive massive so i'm going to touch on one i'm going to touch on one particular before you do that before you do that we have a few new subscribers mark and we need to talk to them about what that is so basically we have our 200th episode coming up and as part of that we are giving away gear we are giving away all sorts of stuff and mark will talk about one of those from one of our sponsors shortly and all you need to do in order to enter the giveaway is send an email vetgurus at gmail.com vetgurus at gmail.com and just talk a little bit about yourself say hello and that's it it's that simple and you're entered that's all it is mark and and yes you want to talk about one of the one of the prizes or giveaways that's in the in the big prize pack from one of our sponsors i completely forgot that we get new i thought everyone who listens to us was already okay with what we're doing but i should have realized that we do have a wave of new people and they need to know about what this is just one of the the uh, big ticket items in the in the bag of swag, um, and we have uh, Microchips Australia, one of our sponsors, um, Doug Black, um, has generously uh, donated a Lone Star retractor. One of the things that um, pretty much I use every time I do uh, an exotic or avian surgery, and uh, quite often these days I'm using it when I do surgery on um, uh, on uh, more common domestic animals, more traditional domestic animals so um it would be a that alone brendan would be a a uh, an outstanding prize to win for our 200th uh podcast uh, but um it's only one part of the bag of swag that people are going to be able to access when they win the absolutely prize. and we will talk about some of the others as we approach episode Two zero zero, and if you're one of our subscribers, and I've just looked up our subscriber base, Mark, as you spoke there. Um, if you're the one listener we have in Liechtenstein, um, you should say email us vetgurus at gmail.com. We may even give you a prize for being in Liechtenstein <laughs> because we have a few people from countries where there's only one subscriber from that country, Mark. Um, obviously, the you know the top four or five, um, which we haven't gone through for a fair while, is, is Oceania, so Australia and New Zealand, United States, United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand and Germany are the, um, are the top, um, well, top, What's that? Top six, isn't it? And um, number seven, Mark is Kazakhstan, as you'll be um, <laughs> I'm proud to proud to know. We have a a very um, popular following in Kazakhstan. Um, 
and it's not just Borat who follows us there. So, yes. So we have, um, I think it's, let's have a look. We now have 121 countries, Mark, um, our subscribers. So we're it is, it never sees, that. Every time you tell me that, I just like have a bit of a head spin because I thought we'd be lucky to have 191 subscribers, <laughs> let alone subscribers from 191 countries. It's a, um, you know, for, well, I'm just astounded and I'm glad that everyone listens to us. Yes. So enter vetgurus at gmail.com. Tell us a little bit about yourself and you're in the giveaway and we will post the giveaway pack anywhere in the world so for free. So um, what more could you want for that? Um, what have you been up to, Mark? Um, have you got some news for me? We've had a bit of controversy at work, Brendan, a little bit of controversy. We do, um, I'm sure like many practices, we uh, get stray animals and before we turn them over to the authorities, we try to get them home. We check them for microchips from Microchips Australia. We, um, we uh, uh, um, you know, search on the various local uh, lost animal pages. Um, we we do a whole bunch of stuff to try and prevent them going getting into the system. Uh, but we had an unusual one this time. Uh, a, we we tend to make it a practice not to put photos on on any of the social media of pets uh, that we're looking to get home. We tend to do a little description and maybe try and identify one of the. Uh, identifying features, unique features, and sometimes that's hard. But most of the time, you can find, you know, a, a, um, you know, uh, a digit, a claw that's a different colour, or something that might, you know, that a person could then use to identify their animal. Yes, I thought you were going to say something really insightful then, but. No. If you foolishly put a photo... Wait for the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't a punch. It was drama because we had... So what species was it? It was a rainbow lorikeet, and we had multiple people all fighting on the web trying to clay claim to a, uh, a particular bird. Um, so it uh, an error in judgment meant the image was posted. It was... Um, it was the same, apparently, as several people's bird, um, and uh, and uh, let's just say the the uh, the conversation, as it does sometimes on social media, got a bit willing, um, and uh, and eventually we had to, well, we were able to resort to other means to find out who owned the bird, but it's it never ceases to amaze me how you have to be very careful about what you so put why on. Do you, why do you think? There was such a fight over this bird. Did, did it have special skills? Was it was it um, was it um, a trained bird? You know what? Why? Um, it's I, well. I'm, I've got a question to ask you. I think one of the things I find on social media is the difference between traditional pets and uh, you know dogs and cats and other pets is that if you find a dog or a cat, people are very keen. To get it home, they'll they'll go out of their way to uh, repatriate that animal. Whereas most birds or rabbits or um, people are pretty much it's finders keepers. If I found it, uh, it's probably going to be mine. Um, so I don't know why it is that um, a relatively common species, well behaved, maybe there was a it was a nice, well behaved um, lorikeet, which is a rare thing, I suppose that increases its value of acquisition but i don't know people people seem to think well 
I it's want a good it. Ad f- it's a good ad for um, microchipping, mm, isn't it? I Permanent think it identification that can't be, yes. Prevents lots of heartbreak. What about yes. you? So have you had any interesting things happen at work? Oh, never. <laughs> There's always something interesting happening. There's always something interesting. Um, as as I mentioned to you previously, off air, we've, we've um, been doing a few particular types of desexins um, of a species that we've, we're going to chat about in the upcoming podcast. So I'm not going to talk about that one. Um, oh, I'll tell you what, we had a bit of a, a couple of sad cases. Oh. Um, or one particular one, a, a lovely almost 11-year-old deerhound cross. And, oh. you know, these giant breeds, such so beautiful dogs. Angus, his name was, Angus, or is his name. Um, and I saw him a few weeks ago and he, he was um, had a bit of muscle wastage on his one of his hind legs. Um, had been there for a while and he seemed a bit stiff and sore in the hip. So I commenced a, some um, um, pentasan polysulfate um, course, four weeks injection, and said, look, we should think about zapping some x-rays and um, um, towards the end of that and doing bloods, etc. cetera. Um, halfway after the second injection, he, he suddenly developed a, a really severe lameness um, around the hock area. So he got him in for radiographs and, yeah, pretty nasty bone tumour, um, distal tibia in the old boy. So... Um. Yeah. So he's he's just going on palliative care. The owners don't. He's an eleven year old, and the owners don't want to go down the track of bone biopsy and confirming whether or not it's an osteosarcoma or one of the other, you know, less nasty tumors. Um. But yeah, it's sad when that happens. But fortunately, um, I did word up the client in the first consult and I said, you know, the worry with these large breeds are, these giant breeds are that um, bone cancers are certainly a a possibility and we don't want it to be that, but I just let you know in the back of my mind I always worry about that. Um, So they're pretty keyed up about it. Um, So, but yeah, lovely old dog. So he probably won't be for this world very much longer and they certainly didn't, you know, and I can understand. I'd, I'd certainly be thinking twice if I, if one of my greyhounds had something similar with, with you know, going down the track of biopsies and then an amputation and plus or minus radiation or chemo with, with not a great, you know, prognosis for them as far as many months, you know, if you're lucky. It's, it's, it is difficult to... to um, justify for particular diseases, and osteosarcs are one of them, aren't they? That um, that the prognosis is not good, and you've got to ask an animal to go through quite a lot. Um, I, I respect those clients and who decide. An eleven not. year, an eleven year old giant, you know, breed too. So yeah. yeah, so a couple of sad cases, and a couple of um, couple of new pets, you know, young 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 puppies and kittens from clients I've seen for many years where we've seen animals come and go, you know, so we're, you know, clients I've had for 15, 20 years. So it's always good getting that, you know, the new new generation and then they're going through that whole puppyhood um, phase of a, a crazy puppy again, you know, where that we've been dealing with an older one that had arthritis and, and heart conditions, etc. And now they've got a nutty puppy that's chewing the house apart. So, <laughs> Yeah, um, it's the cycle of life, Mark. The cycle of life. So where it's yes. a thing we're privileged to be, you know, part of. And sometimes there's those moments where they've got to go, and and it's appropriate that they've reached their time. And it's sad, um, but it's a, a it is a genuine privilege to see that cycle go on. And and I think I take it as a real compliment of your practice 
um, that, you know, because many people have the euthanasia and then associate those, it's the last thing they remember of that dog's life and they associate many negative consequences, many negative sensations, emotions with that event. Um, but to feel sufficiently supported and positive about the practice to bring their next pup back, that's a real feather in your cap, Brendan. Well, I'm sure you get the same at your practice. And speaking of doggies, you have a bit of a story, um, a news story for us about dogness. What is dogness, Mark? Well, I love the um, – I particularly love this article because of who wrote it, who was involved in writing it, a friend of yours um, uh, from your university days who now is at uh, um, Cornell um, – they, uh, Mark Rishnu uh, is a cardiologist and uh, obviously has a, an extensive curiosity and gets stuck into data analysis from all different parts of, uh, of uh, veterinary research. Um, and I don't know why on earth he decided to do this, but uh, um, with MRI information available, he decided to um, graph the dog's brain and body sizes to do a, a bit of an analysis of the relationship between the size of a dog's brain and... I, lo I love the title of this paper, Mark. Um, do you want to read out the title of the actual um, paper that was published in the Open Veterinary Journal? I've, I've, on my copy, I haven't got it, Brendan. What does it say? It's up the top, up the very top, up the first paragraph. Uh, if you can't see it, I'll read it out. You better uh, read it. You haven't got it. So um, the title of the, the paper is Little Brainiacs and Big Dummies. <laughs> are, we select, are we selecting for stupid, stout, or small dogs? Um, that's the, yes. uh, um, that really – so that whole sentence, that the title is taken out of that and I just have um, – uh, quotation marks. And so when research comes out in peer-reviewed journals with quotation marks, you pay attention. And it's true. You do pay attention with a heading like that. Um, and the, 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 the um, adjectives that they use in the heading um, are directly related to the fact that um, dogs who uh, have a body range size um, bigger Oh my goodness! What's going on? They have a body size <laughs> bigger than uh, a bigger range than any other species, um, but um, the proportion, the size of their brain, doesn't vary nearly as much. And so, very small dogs um, have a larger brain to body ratio. And so, this is. Uh, uh, begotten the question, are those little dogs um, smarter because they have a proportionately bigger brain? And essentially the research suggests that that's not the case, that it what is happening is that um, uh, to be a certain amount of brain that satisfies the requirement to be a dog, um, you need that size brain. And if you breed a dog smaller and smaller, you can select for smaller body size, but at a certain point they go, we're not letting the brain get any smaller. Um, we're going to create a big dome-shaped case to house the brain, obviously how Chihuahuas came about. And, um, and in fact, I don't know, there may be um, some uh, argument that those smaller faced, smaller um, breeds are not necessarily as smart as the bigger ones. And the other thing that was interesting is that um, uh, it was Mark, wasn't it, who did the research historically, where he looked at um, at the uh, at the size of um, uh, 
of dogs previously and proportionally the size of their brain. Um, and that ratio seems to have dropped over um, over the years. That uh, dogs may now be may have a ten percent smaller brain compared to uh, body size than they did. Um, how long ago was he looking at that? One hundred and thirty years ago, I think. Yes, <laughs> you think? Yes. yes. Um, and um, but he's de- but the decision was that um, it's much much more likely that the dogs we're looking at now are simply fat, and that added body size is not a, a genuine difference. Our modern dogs are not more stupid than they were one hundred and thirty years ago. They are in fact. Fair and I like the sentence much. he has in the. The sentence he has in the paper, plentiful evidence exists that dogs, like people in the United States, are experiencing an increased prevalence of obesity. So um, he likes to throw in a a couple of interesting um, comments there, controversial comments. Um, And there's a picture of Mark there. Um, I don't know whether you saw that, um, Mark, Um, if you saw Mark Richner's picture there with his Labrador Retriever. And he was asked whether or not she's smart, her, her retriever called Yarra, and he said um, she's very sweet. <laughs> He's very diplomatic. So, yes. So, no, very interesting paper and, uh, yeah, it's um, – and, and one of the other summaries, um, which is understandable, is, is that, you know, we select on, we select on confirmation for, for animals rather than smartness. Um, perhaps we do the same in humans, Mark, <laughs> um, or a lot of people tend to, tend to do. Um, but, yeah, it's a, a very interesting article, and it's an open ac- access article, um, Open Veterinary Journal 2021. So um, we'll have a link to that um, in our show notes, Mark, at vetgurus.com. So there we go. Um, so my my first and only news story, Mark, it's a quick one. It's about GPS tracking on wedgies, Mark. I love the word wedgie, don't you? It's a bit <laughs> of an ock, an Australianism or an ock, ockerism, and it's, it means a certain thing, a wedgie, which is sort of grabbing somebody's underpants and hoisting them up towards the, the sky. Um, that's called a wedgie. It's very descriptive. Um, but- Yes, but the other the other um, type of wedgie, which is this article talks about, is wedge-tailed eagles. These um, amazing birds of prey that we have um, in Australia, and I've been fortunate enough to work with some of them when I was working as a zoo veterinarian, and um, they are they are magnificent animals, um, wedge-tailed eagles. And this article is about um, putting a GPS tracker on young wedge-tailed eagles in Tasmania, which are a separate subspecies, I think, um, or a separate species, um, and following them, seeing um, how far they go. And it's it's extraordinary, as the article um, talks about, how how far these animals can can fly or roam, Mark. Um, The one particular one that um, the article is mainly about, Wyatt is the name of the young Wedge, he, he um, in eight hours he'd flown two hundred twenty-five kilometres, Mark, two hundred twenty-five kilometres, and they're tracking him by a little GPS tracker um, glued on his back that has a little bit of a um, solar panel as well, and they expect that that they'll be able to keep tracking him and his and his um, any any of the other um, wedges for I think a couple of years. They said, Mark, um, it's a sixty-five gram um, little packet that they um, glue on the back of them. I wonder, Mark, is this a Microchips Australia invention, this one, one of our sponsors? Perhaps it is. And you you would think so. If it was cutting edge, it'd have to be, wouldn't it? You would not be surprised. 
Yes. Um, I, don't, on my, I haven't got it on my copy of the article, Brendan, but I have seen online a number of uh, video graphics that um, show the, the the flights of those birds. And um, crikey's they're entertaining to see the way they spiral up on the thermals and then glide to, um, you know, to a new location. So those, those 225-kilometre uh, flights in eight hours often don't involve any wing flapping either. So they are truly amazing. And the, the videos are pretty entertaining to watch in a sort of, you know, uh, what do they call it, ASMR way, sort of, you know, just sedately watching how the eagle flies. Yes. And the um, the um, little lines that they put on the map of Tasmania where these eagles flew over, the little squiggly lines, it's just like a little, you know, kindergarten kid has got a crayon and um, just scribbled in the whole of um, Tasmania there. It's amazing the distance they've covered with them. So, yeah. So... That'd be fun. I'd like to do it. That'd be a, an interesting um, um, project, wouldn't it, Mark? Uh, oh, yeah. You know, that would be fun. So there we go. That's my story. GPS tracker on wedgies gives us a bird's eye view. Gee, that's a bit of a corny line there, isn't it, Mark? It's probably something I'd write if I was a, a journalist there. So there we go. So they're planning to – so the, the only other thing I like to say about this article is that, that they mainly were tracking the young ones because – they were finding um, the youngsters were, were often being found dead, weren't they? Um, so they're trying to work out what was happening because most of the eagles found dead are young birds. Um, so they're trying to track um, the youngsters to see what they're up to and if there's any um, association with, with um, trying to find out why they were dying, um, those young ones. Um, there we go. The, tr- the, the trackers will continue to transmit the birds' movement for up to five years. Jeez. So that's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing, yeah. So they expect about half of the 25 eagles to die in their first year after leaving their nest, typically, um, uh, um, but all except two survived um, of the ones that they were tracking, Mark. So, yeah, there we go. So, um, sorry, you had another comment on that? I was just going to say um, they, they, um, my recent trips out to western New South Wales were um, were – um, honoured with a number, quite a number of views of um, uh, wedge-tailed eagles, and there is a. It does seem to be a little bit of a population explosion at the moment. Lots and lots of um, young birds left shift in New South Wales. The different subspecies, but still spectacular to see. So, what do you reckon that? Why do you reckon that is? Is it is it COVID related in any way? No, I don't think so. I think it just has to do with um, uh, the recent rains and the birds have opportunistically, you know, fed on the the uh, increased Sheep. number of rabbits. And yes. <laughs> okay, so we'll move on to our main topic, which is one you suggested, Mark, because you thought it would be a very good punchy one, and it's a another one in our series of desexing um, of unusual pets or exotic pets and it is about female guinea pig desexing so yeah let's jump into it mark why do we why do we recommend desexing female guinea pigs because they get horrible reproductive tract disease they get um those bloody cysts and things and if you um it's surprising how many of uh the undersexed guinea pigs that you will see develop these problems so um it is a good thing um, and and the other thing that I find really interesting is that uh, the people who own the guinea pigs that 
develop those reproductive tract problems, the ovarian cysts, the various other tumours that they might get, they, 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 it does knock them around. They really care about their guinea pigs and they are distressed. And so preventing it before it gets to be something you've got to do a more dramatic surgery on is much easier for them to deal with. So um, um, getting in and, and making sure they don't have problems with uh, those reproductive tract diseases, making sure they don't um, get mated late in life and then have dystochia issues, are all good reasons to get the reproductive tract out of your guinea pig. Yes. So how do we do that, Mark? And there's a couple of interesting methods, isn't there? And one in particular that sort of gained favour over the last few years. Um, and I presume you, you're doing that particular technique. I think <laughs> this, you said this you is had a, a very awkward part of the podcast <laughs> where various assumptions are made. <laughs> <laughs> and and our and our research, and it's, and it's particularly um, embarrassing because, as everyone would know, you're you're a world renowned speaker on um, these routine procedures in uh, small mammals and exotic species, and so, um, you know, me telling you what I do might end up being very very embarrassing. Well, so Brendan, what do you? What yeah. do you <laughs> <laughs> Well, my, my preferred technique is the ovariectomy, um, which was uh, um, the, the best paper that sort of describes it both pictorially and in a text is one that was um, published in the New Zealand Veterinary Journal um, several years ago, and it has a really good description of it. Um, and, and basically the reason why we're going for an ovariectomy is is because of what you mentioned um, previously. We're mainly worried about ovarian cysts and guinea pigs and we rarely, if ever, see any any um, um, reproductive tumours. And I know you're going to comment on this, but it's, 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 it's extremely rare um, to see those. So if we desex that guinea pig um, by removing those ovaries, especially when it's young, um, only a few months of age and then the chances of it developing problems in the rest of that reproductive tract that we've left is is very very slim and the beauty of the particular ovariectomy technique is um it's fairly simple and fairly straightforward um, once you get the hang of it um is, it is that what it is you, a big, you do mark it is a big jump though from you know uh what standard you're used to, yeah, yeah. Yes, it does take yes. a bit of um, wrapping your brain around um, uh, an alternate um, procedure. It's not just a small adjustment, and I, and I think the key with that is it's 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 your landmarks and, and where you make those incisions, and if you happen to get the incision in the correct spot, which you are about to describe shortly <laughs> um, for our listeners, um, then then away you go but if you if you're slightly off then it can can be a bit of fishing expedition there mark can't it um but before <laughs> we talk about that actual actual, actual um, procedure um we should step back one more if if you're presented with a a guinea pig that does have obvious cystic ovaries which you can obviously palpate what's your advice to the client do you get in straight away and and um remove those ovaries or, or do you try and um, aspirate those ovarian cysts first and then come back later or what? I've had no success um, uh, trying to do anything but get them out. Um, aspirating them 
um, doesn't seem to make the guinea pigs feel better. Um, my experience has been once they get to that point, um, I open them up and get them out. And and uh, it's interesting, Brendan, because uh, traditionally I've done that ventral midline approach to gain access, and it and it is. It's a frustrating um, recovery, uh, but using your, the uh, I think that's this. this I'm, I'm I'm assuming the New Zealand Veterinary Journal describes the the uh, the flank approach, yeah. and um, and uh, that's the approach that I now use for the cysts. I've got to obviously make a much uh, more significant incision to get them out, but um, it seems to. Uh, allow a, a better recovery. Um, the guinea pigs do um, uh, better in and have fewer complications. Um, the wounds are less likely to dehiss, and they're uh, and you're disrupting the gastrointestinal tract uh, far less. So they just seem to do better in my hands. Yes. Well, I tend to, my approach is that um, if they are fairly large cysts, I do recommend to the client that we aspirate them and then we and i just do that percutaneous i i without ultrasound guiding um um, with the animal anesthetized and then i get it back within um, a couple of weeks um and it just means i have i don't have to do a very big incision for that skin and that um, abdominal incision so that's just my particular preference with it um but if it's only a centimeter or so maybe a little bit bigger i'll just yeah recommend going straight in and, and trying to remove it they um, can I get presume quite big you, though can't they, they like, yeah it's they not, certainly can many um, centimeters no, yeah five centimeters is probably the biggest yes, one we've seen yes so the flank approach mark so w- what are we doing with that if it's a bit bit of a tricky one to sort of describe over over an audio podcast, but I'll if give you it a crack. Sort of fun, yeah. <laughs> I'll give it a crack. Um, I I make um, an incision that's about, I suppose, um, roughly speaking, and you you've hit it. Um, <laughs> you, you've hit um, the 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 location is critical. If you are a little bit off, um, you can be fishing around in retroperitoneal fat for days. Um, and not getting anywhere. Um, so um, I, I locate a, a point that is about um, uh, between eight and ten millimeters from the the sort of uh, dorsal spine, making sure I'm just lateral to those lumbar muscles, and then about um, uh, ten millimeters uh, behind the last rib, um, and where those two lines intersect, I make an incision. Um, it's about. Uh, um, Oh, probably eight millimeters. Um, and if you're lucky, you, you feel like a god when you do that. You make the incision through the skin sharp, blunt dissection through the, the uh, muscle layer, and there it is just sitting there waiting for you to yank it out. Um, you, I have to be honest and say the first few times I did it, I was fishing around in that, particularly if there's an, a young guinea pigs are good because there's not a huge amount of fat up there, but they age a little bit and you're fishing around in stuff for ages before you find it. Um, but if you and get you the spot. Yeah, you typically know if you're in the right spot because you see a, a particular <laughs> sort of colour fat there, don't you? And you know that's the ovarian sort of fat there. And, yes, my technique's virtually identical there, Mark, and that, that original <laughs> article does talk about does talk about using a finger um, and, the, and you put a finger sort of ventrodorsally just behind the rib um, and you cross another finger just below the lumbar area and that that's sort of where your incision is. The only variation that I tend to do these days is I tend to make a 
a, a sort of an oblique incision rather than than um, laterally, and that way, if I need to open up the incision dorsally or 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 laterally, I can um, because I haven't done a um, a, a vertical incision or, or a or a horizontal incision. Um, I've I've made the initial skin incision at a, at an angle, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. and I think that some um, that uh, not being afraid of extending the incision. That's probably my. Um, tip that um, I've gotten into most trouble where I've gone, oh, bloody hell, I've made this incision and I'm going to find the damn thing no matter what. And if you're, you know, five mil off, you, you'll search for ages and be frustrated. So just extending the uh, incision, if you think you're a little bit too far ventrally, just um, uh, just using the angle that you have cut the incision to extend a little bit more dorsally or vice versa helps a lot. And then once you've um, accessed that ovary, how are you? What are you doing with it, Mark? You're clamping wise and uh, yeah, um, uh, get into it with the um, uh, hemoclips, um, cl- uh, clamping it uh, um, dors. I suppose dors. It's they if you've got them, if you've got the right spot, you can generate quite. I'm always surprised how far I can elevate them. I suppose I'm not thinking about how mobile they are when I access ovaries from the ventral midline, um, and they have to be, you know, I suppose pretty mobile to get them out a ventral midline incision from their location on the dorsal uh, body wall. Uh, but when you make access through the flanks, you can elevate them, you know. A surprising distance outside the body to um, get your uh, uh, hemoclips onto the ovarian artery, the pedicle, um, and then um, clamp. De- I, I usually am taking a tiny bit of the um, uh, uterus with that horn of the uterus with it as yes. well. Go on. You were very excited. Ditto. To- Ditto, Mark. Ditto. And if you're very lucky, um, and it's not very often, I think it's probably one in 10 or so, um, I managed to exteriorize the other ovary into the one incision. I've um, never so been able up, to do that. Okay. So I managed to get both out. But as I say, it'd be one in 10 if that. Um, so, you know, there'd probably only be a dozen or so over the years that I've managed to do that way. Um, so then we flip. We close that incision. We put uh, well. Um, I, met, I, I closed simple interrupted in the in the in the muscle layer, um, plus or minus subcut. Usually not maybe an, and an intradermal um, incision um, closure, plus or minus tissue glue. Then we flip the guinea pig over, and then we do the same on the other side. Is that what you do, mate? Exactly, precisely. That's probably. Um, I often have them. Do you have them in sternal recumbency when you do this? No, I tend to just have them um, lateral. In, in lateral, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, do you find it easier in sternal or not? Yeah, yep. I, I find it for two reasons, I suppose, because I'm not moving them to go to the other side. Um, and my impression is that um, I'm able to position the incision better um, when I've got them in that sort of natural body position rather than. But it's all, I suppose, it's just what you're used to, Brendan. Yep. Excellent. And then what about and, pain I, I just relief? wanted to re before we go to pain relief, I wanted to reiterate the use of single interrupted uh, uh, sutures in guinea pigs for any incision that goes into the body cavity. Um, I do find um, 
while synthetic absorbables with um, with uh, continuous uh, sutures. Uh, there's lots of publications that say there's no advantage um, in many other species. I think it's pretty clear that um, you're more likely to get a dehiscence in a, a guinea pig if you uh, don't. There is a battle of, you know, the volume of suture material you put in but with those um those flank ones uh three or four single interrupteds in the muscle layer i usually don't need to do subcutaneous ones and then the the uh intradermal so that the guinea pigs can't groom them out um works a treat and the other advantage of this technique is that we have a suture line or an incision line that's on the flank there so um, that guinea pig isn't dragging that suture line through it's been and been a guinea pig um, and potentially I think less likely to get post-operative infections and and I, I, I think some vets do but I, I don't mark put them on any any prophylactic antibiosis um, antibiotics um, certainly lots of pain relief and you're going to talk about the pain relief now um, as we finish off this podcast <laughs> Um, so what pain relief do you recommend? What do you send them home on, Mark? Do you give them anything um, perioperatively as well? Definitely. I don't – oh, Brendan, what a question to ask. Um, I do use a, a little bit of local anaesthetic in the surgical site at the time of surgery. I make sure I measure that. One of the problems we always know with our very small patients and any regional anaesthesia is it's very easy to overdose them with splash blocks. So I prefer to precisely measure the dose and, and uh, make sure I use the right amount. Um, on closure – uh, uh, I always use some buprenorphine in these guys. I am worried with guinea pigs about um, about the uh, potential for gastrointestinal stasis, um, but buprenorphine as part of the uh, operative analgesic plan hasn't been given me significant trouble with gastrointestinal stasis. Um, and then they go home with post-operative. I don't give them meloxicam uh, before or during, but post-operatively they get uh, um, three or four days of meloxicam um, at home. Are you doing anything Pretty similar like that? here. <laughs> yes, very similar, Mark. Um, and the opiate, we... Um, get into them as methadone because I use that as a pre-med for them. So they have methadone as a pre-med and meloxicam uh, for several days afterwards as well. And um, typically um, they're pretty routine, um, these ones. And, we, you know, the clients come back three to five days for a post-operative check with one of the nurses um, and you see a little bit of a scab forming um, over that over that um, suture line, if you if you if you've put a little bit of tissue glue as well, some of them I don't put the tissue glue on, depending on how well the intradermal comes together with them. And um, I think the other beauty of this particular procedure is they they certainly aren't knocked around as nearly as hard as as if you're going a ventral midline um, incision like a laparotomy or a, or a traditional ovarian hysterectomy. Now, the final thing, Mark, before we close, have you seen any reproductive um, neoplasms in, in guinea pigs? I have. In I, I, I noticed that you um, picked up on that. I, I, it is uh, uh, not a common thing to see at all, and we'll often, um, you know, whack the ultrasound probe on and, and uh, see strange things in the reproductive reproductive tract and um and we have had a look at a lot of them but we have had one leiomyosarcoma a uh, smooth muscle tumor of the of the reproductive tract but um but yeah they are and certainly 
I th- I don't have any evidence to support this, but that rarely stops me saying things. Um, I suspect uh, de-sexing them would decrease the likelihood of those rare tumours even more. So I, I don't think it's, um, uh, you know, I think it's an appropriate thing just to ovariectomise these animals and not panic about the remaining um, uh, uterus that's left inside them. Well said, well said. And Mr. Outro Man's here, in, here already, and we will talk to you all next week. And don't forget to email us at gmail.com for the giveaway. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes, and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. It's still going.